Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going, Champagne Shark? So this is a do-over episode. We had technical difficulties. We tried to use a service, which I won't publicly slander, but it did not work out. So this is a redo of a previous episode. But you know what? We're going to capture the magic even better. This was meant to happen. This will be better than the lost audio. So without further ado, let's... I'm T. You can find me on uh, find the show on Twitter at Champagne Sharks. And we have with us as uh, co-host Vita. Hey, what's up? If you don't know where to find me, you can find me on Twitter easily at Lifestar Media. And we have two guests today. Both of them have uh, written articles that enjoyed greatly, came out close together, and had enough overlap that I thought it would be interesting to have them on uh, together, which ended up being true because last week was very, very interesting. You're just never not going to hear it, but you're going to hear the better version. So first off, you know, we have Bertrand Cooper. If you can just uh, let us know who you are uh, and give us a quick rundown of the article you just wrote. Yeah, uh, I'm a freelance writer. Uh, the piece came out through Current Affairs. Um, if you're trying to follow me, I'm on Twitter at underscore black trash. Um, you'll find anything having to do with me there. In terms of the piece, the <laughs> hopefully the elevator per- pitch version is that in response to the death of people who grow up black and poor, such as George Floyd, who's coming out of the CUNY Homes Projects, the main area that we expect to respond to this tragedy immediately is popular culture. That's the place where we expect an immediate response um, every time poor black people are, you know, murdered in this really sensational sensational way. Uh, What I focus on is that, first off, the response is, you know, we increase the visibility of black creators in the pop cultural space. The other thing is like, by to increase you know that visibility we're giving black creators jobs people are getting to write these articles they're getting to write these movies they're getting to make more things and so everyone who just scans over the last year will recall seeing black watch lists on hulu netflix the like whatever magazine you read they probably had a black issue where they put a lot of black authors forward um this is one supposed to help people connect to the black poor, to connect to that struggle, to connect to that experience. It's also a type of remuneration uh, to black communities that have suffered these losses. Uh, What my piece hones in on though, is that George Floyd comes from a particular class of people, as do most of the black people who have been killed over the years that we've been paying attention to this. And pop culture is an industry. It has occupations, like any occupation you have to apply to get that job. George Floyd doesn't have a bachelor's degree. And when you look at pop culture, It is a college educated profession where most jobs require you'd have a bachelor's degree to get it. So there's this tension here for me where we're trying to honor George Floyd by increasing the presence of black people in popular culture. Um, But George Floyd and the people living in those projects right now, they could never apply for these jobs because it's a college educated field. And that's really um, what I focus on. Almost every black creative you've seen is coming uh, out of college. They have a bachelor's degree and bachelor's degrees are closely tethered to class so that most of the time 
if someone's college educated, not always, but most of the time, uh, they're going to be from one of the non-poor classes, going to be middle or upper class. Uh, and I'll cut off there. Uh, cool, cool. Very cool. And we have returning guest Jason England, who also wrote a piece that was pretty good recently. And if you could just let people know where to find you and, you know, give the quick elevator pitch version of your speech. Um, yeah, sure. Well, find me wherever the fuck you find me. Um, don't go on Twitter. Get the fuck off Twitter. I'm, I'm there somewhere if you Google, I guess. I don't know. I don't even know my name there. Um, I... Uh, you can find me by, by Googling Jason England and looking up my, my piece my pieces on the Chronicle, and I think that it looks like they firewall them or paywall them, but you just have to register a free account to read them. Yeah, you know, I wrote about um, ostensibly Nicole Hannah-Jones, although that was really the editor's call. You know, it's a sensational headline. It got clicks. Uh, but what I was really saying was um, through Nicole Hannah-Jones, we sort of got the formula um, for the way that the white left mainstream media has been dealing with social justice in the wake of heightened awareness or supposed awareness, uh, which is that they've cultivated a class of mascots and figureheads, um, and they get us to invest our energy, uh, psychic and political energy, um, in these causes that are really at, at root capitalistic um, and not representative of any real racial or social uplift. Um, and you find yourself sort of online uh, with these talking points and enjoying at best a sense of schadenfreude, right? Um, but, but not actually gaining anything for yourself um, and you, these people have convinced you, in some cases maliciously, in, in some cases really through the social media machine, uh, uh, you know, to the, their credit, sometimes not of their own doing. Uh, but you become convinced that their individual causes are a stand-in for legitimate social justice, um, and there's an obvious danger to that. And so, I guess my piece explored that a bit, and also um, this sort of this notion of the Black Renaissance, which seems to be a corporate-sponsored Renaissance out of step with black reality. Um, and I, I, you know, where we, where I overlap, I overlap in a few places with Bertrand, but in one place is that, um, you know, that this Renaissance seems to be, uh, very much an upper middle class, uh, Renaissance that's sponsored, bought and paid for by the establishment. And you have these sort of, uh, establishment, anti-establishment figures, and you can't be that, you know, you have to, you have, you have revolutionaries who are corporate and establishment and, it, and it's gotten out of hand. Um, and so there has to be a moment of reckoning. Um, I kind of address the real tension that exists, not only in the academy, but also in general between black people who are, you know, really losing patience and feeling a sense of urgency um, in terms of where we are uh, in society and the black people who continue to insist that we're actually winning uh, because they personally are enriching themselves. And so, uh, yeah, I think that was the basic gist of my piece. And I mean, we can I can expound on that, you know, as we continue to talk and it's always a pleasure to be here thank you for having me again t and, and Vita, good to meet you again and I'll, you know i'll pretend it's the first time that i met you all but you know t you're like the guy who comes home and tells your lady that you cheated on her and she didn't have any evidence why do you have to tell them that this is a do-over they wouldn't know <laughs> <laughs> it's my guilty conscience it's just eating at me yeah yeah but uh i mean I kind of wanted I kind of wanted to bring it up up front because there's like some things where I'm like, are we going to do the whole thing over again? So I kind of don't want to do them all over again. So that's one of the reasons I brought it up. Like, for example, uh, Vida and I had uh, talked to Bertram about some of the parts that we uh yeah yeah that we disagreed <laughs> with the article about and i was like are we gonna like re replay act play act and reenact like the whole thing like a civil war reenactment you know or do we just give the uh summary bullet point version so i thought 
we'd probably do doing a bridged ver- we're doing a bridge version of the disagreement part you know and people know why we're doing it that way but uh i guess we can get that out of the way first because i think there's a lot more we agree on than, than disagree on so i'd rather just like um get that out the way but vita do you want to uh kick yeah off you want to set you want to <laughs> set me up for or you want me to just because i know what they are well i guess and it's funny because that uh, i'm actually glad that uh he clarified or, or kind of snitched on us in a bit because I was like, how do I ask these questions again? It's like, I don't know the answer. Um, <laughs> but when I first read your article, I was just trying to get some clarity on how you were identifying um, middle class because it seemed like you were attaching it a, a very closely to degrees and college degrees when, you know, and a lot of a lot of spaces and I would say LA probably New York as well there are a lot of people who are low income with advanced degrees in fact a lot of the jobs that um you know people aren't even able to get with degrees aren't even really middle class jobs anymore so you know how exactly are we able to you know how how are you linking education status with income when not those aren't necessarily the same thing yeah. So some of the things in my piece, uh, part of my piece is reaction to the fact that I'm very used to seeing poor and working class or poor and working people uh, really put together in this one phrase. And I wanted as much as possible to sort of articulate the differences between these. And for me, it was like really tethered to income. So like some that's come back to me a lot. It has to do with education. The whole reason why I fixate on higher education and college degrees is because most of us do not disclose what our class background is. But through a bachelor's degree, unfortunately, because higher education is so relentlessly classist, you have these statistics come through where uh, low-income high school students, um, which, by the way, all the government agencies or government-backed ones that say low-income high school students, they try not to release the most depressing statistics possible. So when they say low income, they actually include students who are about 25% above the poverty line. So just to buff the numbers a little bit, they don't even just exclusively look at the poor because that would just be too depressing, probably. Um, But so you have one out of every 10 low-income high school students, students who make 25% of the poverty line or less, or really their family do, graduates eventually with a bachelor's degree. The way that comes out though, it means that nine out of every 10 bachelor's students is coming from a non-poor group. So bachelor's degrees end up being this really, really good, but not perfect way of telling whether or not someone grew up near or below the poverty line. That's why I focus on it. Because otherwise the way that, and Jason uses a really good word, whether you're looking at mascots or stand-ins, there's this habit of every black face that gets platformed to speak in first person pronouns regarding every oppressive statistic having to do with black people, me, my, our, we, you know, my people. And you really can't tell where they're coming from. And so I was trying to give people who are imbibing all this black pop culture, like if you just look on the inside of the book and you see that person has a bachelor's degree and you know nothing else about them. And believe me, you should research them. Don't just assume that people who have bachelor's degrees couldn't have made it out of like bad situations. But if you see that bachelor's degree, on average, just across the U.S., nine times out of 10 or more, they're not going to be coming from poverty. And that's why I focus on higher education. Um, that being said, <laughs> if you make it to college out of like, you know, uh, an impoverished background, just going to college doesn't negate those experiences. I'm not trying to say that those people 
uh, can't write about poverty just because they went to college. What I'm trying to get people to stop doing is assuming that the system as is that uses higher education as a way to create or, or select these artists, that it's not fraught with these class problems. You can't just assume that this college system can produce for you just, you know, black people who come from that experience. It's not built to do that. So that's why I focus on that. The other part is like, I do want to acknowledge, like you mentioned this last time, Vita, like you come from an area where like lots of folks had college degrees and um, they're not getting everything that a college degree is supposed to imply. And that's important. Uh, my focus right now is just trying to like increase the specificity with which we think about poverty. And for me, that comes down to income where it's like, listen, $30,000 a year, especially if you have family or if you're like a struggling adjunct, like you're not living comfortable. That's not a great life. But I still am for right now trying to hone in on the fact that like a family of four living beneath the poverty line, they're making $27,000 a year. Most organizations left or right put the bottom of the working class at about 30 grand. So even the bottom of the working class is about $3,000 more than the wealth or highest earning poor family. And I'm, you know, I still think poor and working class people, especially poor and working class black people, have a lot of aligned political interests. But I'm trying to make sure people understand that there's like differences in their economic power that are important that have to be acknowledged because otherwise, um, the poor just kind of get forgotten about that. So it's not to say that everyone with a college degree is getting what they're promised or that um, every, you know, black person with a college degree is living distantly from any poor people. You might be at the bottom of the food chain at whatever college you're working at. Um, but these distinctions, I think, still matter. Hopefully that's that unpacks some of that. Uh, yeah, my personal um, disagreement was that I was a little bit worried whether it was something intended by you or not, but that I had been seeing online that I felt like some people, because I agree with the uh, overall premise that a lot of people who are not uh, poor, who are black, are kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, stealing valor from uh, poor black people, like kind of using their... Uh, struggles and life circumstances to kind of sometimes by open misrepresentation or sometimes by the type of casual misrepresentation that Dave Chappelle joked about where he said that people assume he's from the hood and he kind of lets them uh, believe it he doesn't uh, correct them you know like I don't I don't like that I don't like a lot of people who are not um, poor trying to actively pretend or lie by omission and pretend they are poor but sometimes i feel there's a overcompensation where sometimes people pretend if you're black and not in poverty that you have no problems due to your race or or that you're almost identical to the white people in the same uh income levels and i had seen some kind of class reductionist uh socialist kind of take your article and run with that i didn't see you yourself um do that, but I was I was worried that by not making that explicit, it could end up being uh, ammunition for a certain type of person who wants to advocate this kind of um, class only, ignore race uh, approach to solving stuff. You know, like like my stance is somewhere in the middle where I don't want black people who are not poor to steal valor from poor people. I'm okay with them acknowledging they have special problems due to the race. Just be honest about it, the class component, and don't try to uh, fake it. So, yeah, that was my yeah. that was my issue. So, I think so. I 100% agree with you. I don't want people to take this as evidence that every uh, black person who is not in poverty has a life identical to a white person making even the same money as them. But I think this gets into the problem or the problems that arise from always referencing like a black experience, like almost every time 
you see somebody, say from the Atlantic, some black journalist, uh, Van Newkirk comes to mind, who, you know, was interviewed by Trevor Noah. When he was asked about the black experience, he wasn't asked about black middle class experience on college. He wasn't asked about, you know, uh, black tech folks in Silicon Valley. He was asked about redlining. He was asked about the ghetto. He was asked about poverty. He was asked about, you know, lead poisoning in parts of New Orleans where people are living in the projects. When we say black experience, when we're talking to white people about the parts of black experience they care about, we end up talking about things like incarceration. And when I dig into incarceration, um, when Tanasi Coates digs into it, when most people dig into it, when you see it broken down by class, if that's the particular issue you're going to look at, what you're going to find is 80 plus percent of black prisoners uh, were living in poverty prior to being incarcerated. If you look up the people who are still living in red line districts. If you look up the people who are being killed by police, the reason why I bang this drum so hard focusing on poverty is because the main source of this political currency or goodwill or whatever you want to call it, it's hyper fixated on forms of oppression where the black poor are the ones mostly supplying the bodies to these forms of oppression. Now, if people were to go on these different talk shows and expand it to things that, you know, are unjust in the lives of black middle class folk or black upper class folk, that's a different story. But as long as their main source of getting political leverage is to hyper focus on the parts of the black experience where the main bodies being oppressed all come from this one class, that's what incites me to be very, very, very specific about what incomes put you in these different groups. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good abridgment of uh, the discussion we had. I, I think that was about a, about 45 minutes of, of last episode, just kind of uh, summarized and abridged. Uh, one other thing that I kind of thought about too, and I wasn't sure where I fell on, fell on with this, was, um, and I actually want to ask everybody about this, but it it's something that originated in uh, Bertrand's piece. The one thing I was kind of worried about, and I want to know what uh, everyone thinks about this, I'm not quite as convinced that getting people with poor backgrounds is going to solve the problem because in my experience, even the black people with poor backgrounds that get in, they have had so much kind of um, molding. Like, like Vito always says, that she always feels like a lot of black people, if they make it into a certain room, They've already shown that they're a certain way because they won't they won't make it that far unless they have certain qualities. So, like my fear is, even if they do um, get black people of a certain pedigree, there's a lot of black people who grow up poor who, through going being bused to boarding schools, going to um, you know private schools and Ivy leagues, and being groomed a certain way, they kind of end up with a lot of similar values as the people who don't grow up in those you know like all the rough edges have been kind of shaved off them and they've been made to uh to go from a square peg to a round peg that fits into you know that same hole that the middle class people do so i was kind of curious what not just you bertrand but um everybody thinks about the idea of even if we do get more poor black people represented are they just going to find poor black people who've totally lost touch or are willing to do the same cultural project that these, you know, because chances are they're going to be nouveau riche now, you know, and they're going to probably have the same agenda. If I can hop on in on that, but I do want to hear what everyone else thinks. I want to. So one of the things is like, I didn't write this piece with a solution in mind. And this, uh, to a degree, some of the things that people say back to me, not y'all, but like that some people have said on Twitter 
is like it kind of reminds me of the reparations debate and this idea that reparations won't necessarily solve all of black people's problems. And that's not really my focus is whether or not this is the solution that will solve all black people's problems. My focus more has to do with, you know, A, the self-determination of poor black people. It's their experiences and I'd like them to have absolute ownership over it. I don't have a really developed political ideology or end state that I'd like to be in, but at the ethical level, that makes a lot of sense to me that you should have ownership over the experiences that you've had and that other people shouldn't be able to capitalize on them um, is really where I'm focused. Um, I would like <laughs> for them to use those platforms were they to get them to do something good and to do something. Uh, and for me, good would mean something radical. I don't know that they would, but I don't yet spend too much time thinking about what poor black people would do if given rights to their own stories. I'm more just focused on right now, those experiences belong to them. And also the people participating in this, they think that by buying these books, watching these TV shows, doing this stuff, that they are doing something for those poor black people. Um, they're connecting in some way. And since the goodwill and empathy is meant for them, I wanted to go there. And it's similar to like, I focus on popular culture, but you know, Harvard, the whole Ivy League, every part of our culture says when they do these initiatives that they are responding to things that happen to people like Breonna Taylor and uh, George Floyd or Eric Garner or Mike Brown. And so like every year for most of the last decade, I've watched the number of black students at Harvard increase to the point now black students are overrepresented at Harvard based on even their population share of you know 18 year olds but it's not going to the people that supposedly this is for and that's that's the issue for me um i haven't gone as far as like will they be able to use that self-determination to do something radical and i'm fine for other people exploring that but that's just not where i was at when i was writing this that's fair anyone else want to uh, weigh in with their thoughts on that topic i'm giving our guests a chance <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't, there, there's so much there, I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, um, you know, if, if you want to talk about what's happening in higher education, and, and, and this is sort of what kills me of, about all of this. Um, and so, prepare yourself oh, and for a rambling rant and, here. And please, and please give the people uh, your credentials for being able to speak on uh, speak on higher yeah. education because I feel like it's important. So yeah, so so here's the thing. Um, I'm just I'm just some nigga that grew up in New York. Uh, I, you know, I, I am. You know, and, and I recognize that about myself. I I, I I lived in a homeless shelter. It was called the Holland Hotel. It was a it was a hellscape in the '80s New York. Um, and I used to stay in the projects on 126 and Lex MH and AK buildings to get away from that. Um, with my family still is to this day. Um, you know, my cousin, rest, rest in peace, was like my brother. I lived with him there. Um, my story is like many stories. It, it, it happened to have a better uh, progressive journey so far. Um, and I don't speak like an authority on poverty because I'm not one. I'm one of many. I don't speak as an authority on higher education, although I've written for the Chronicle about college admissions because I used to be a dean of admissions. I saw that up close, and I was a dean of admissions at an elite school. Um, the arts institution called Westland. And what kills me about this culture, um, and, and I think this will speak a little bit to what we're talking about, is this assumption of expertise, expertise, not just on blackness, but on everything. You know, everyone has these opinions on high learning, admissions and stuff. And I'm reading this, I'm like, don't I know this better than 99% of people? And I've never, I don't tweet about it. Why the fuck are you tweeting about it? This is bizarre. Like, why do you have a strong opinion about it? But I think that you're on to something for sure in terms of representation. And it ties back into uh, a larger point you're making, right? Um, which is that, 
<clears throat> there has to be an integrity of purpose and an integrity of process. And that's not something that poor black people can control. That's shaped by people who are in power. And when you have people who have decided that their solution to economic and social and racial injustice is to simply admit a larger number of black students and make no mistake about it if you've seen the statistics and you've worked from the inside of this process black students who are descendants of slaves are really an well, endangered I assume, species I assume particularly america I assume you particularly mean American slaves, right? And, and 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 this isn't like I don't, bro. I'm not hip to all of this shit. I don't even know what is it. Ados, Ados, A D O S. I don't know shit That's about the these movements, dog. So so <laughs> I got to say the other day, and I admitted ignorance. Yeah, I'm not. I'm gonna admit an ignorance. I don't do any of the online stuff. I, what I'm saying is, this was used to be something that we actually discussed in mainstream college ad- admissions. We would say we're admitting more black students, but the actual black students that we cultivated here. In America, the black Americans who have been here forever, we're losing them. We don't have a pool to draw from. Even if we were being as generous with the restrictions of college admissions as we could, we simply don't have these motherfuckers. Now, on top of that, all of the schools began to compete for them in the rush to have a diverse campus. Black people became like trees. You know, like on, on no, like on the California, on the West Coast campus, you go to these campuses and you start measuring them when you're wealthy. They're like Club Med. Which campus looks better? This, this campus has these fucking, you know, the red elms and the this and, and, and the redwoods. And what you don't understand is that a lot of these campuses, be, they begin to import the trees. They're not native to the area, right? So they start cultivating a campus with a landscape of beautiful trees to get your tuition dollars and to make it seem like they naturally have a beautiful campus. Similarly, with diversity, they start bringing all these black and Hispanic and whatever else in. And they're, you're, they're not there out of nobility, like, hey, this is a good thing. It's more like this flatters the sensibilities of the white parents who want to come to a liberal arts institution. They want to say, hey, my kid, unlike, unlike your Cretan kid, my kid went to a school with a bunch of red elms or a bunch of Negroes or what have you, right? Um, and so to supply that, and I'll give credit to college admissions to this extent, what do you expect a liberal arts institution to do? Do they have the corrective for societal ills? They don't. They don't have the resources or the manpower to do that. So what they do is they go out and they start recruiting kids from other countries. Um, you know, we had a base in Jamaica. We had a base in the Caribbean. Like we would, we we spent as many as much in resources in the Caribbean as we did in New York when I worked in college admissions. We are trying to get kids from the Caribbean to come, and those kids tend to be people who have uh, working class to upper class parents. They have a solid educational foundation. They're closer to meeting the, the admissions criteria than the kids who are in America. And subconsciously or directly, those kids kind of get a message eventually that they're cosplaying a specific substrand of diversity, right? Um, you're here to represent blackness in a certain way. And that becomes their lane as they progress professionally, right? They, they realize that white people expect them to play a certain role. It's not to explicate, hey, here's what it's like to be black from this background. You're representing the general blackness that's absent in these spaces um, that they expect to be sort of urban and authentic in whatever warped way that they mean. And they begin to play that part. And so um, I think about this a lot. Because I think about this in terms of prep for prep. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that program. And also a program I just did. I just went to Texas to did a program for economically disadvantaged kids. The people who end up in these programs are never the target audience or rarely. They're typically the people who are savvy. 
And so these might be middle class, upper middle class, and sometimes lower cresting middle class families who understand these programs exist, that there's money, and that that money has to be dispensed, and that most people don't know they exist. And so you can kind of slide through because you look the part, right? And so this is not an indictment of those programs. They have, they're well-intentioned. But program has to get off the ground. It has to happen. You got this money in these slots and people learn to slide into those slots. When you learn from an early age that you're sliding in the slots that weren't meant for you, you kind of learn to cosplay that role. And not only that, but you feel comfortable talking about that. You learn from an early age how to talk from a certain perspective that might not 100% be yours. Um, and so so that's something that, that was on my mind when I was reading Bertrand's piece. I do think that the one thing I'll agree with you with is education just doesn't mean money for black and we've learned that the hard way it's the reason that a lot of black people are the way we are which is to say we understand meritocracy to be a sham right we i know people who i went to college with i think of my man jay heasy uh archbishop malloy for high school uh colby and then transferred to wesleyan he was working for three years at the fucking gap with that degree you know there were kids who drunk drove into the student newspaper building who were white and walked into $90,000 a year jobs, right? Why is Jay Heasy at the gap with a lot of student debt? You come to believe, or not just believe, but understand the truth of the fact that when we talk about class and race, that they're two distinctly different things that happen to overlap in some situation. And you lose faith um, in the idea that your education can actually get you somewhere in this country. And you begin to embrace nihilistically without knowing it, the same capitalism that oppresses you because the only freedom that you've ever seen anyone achieve has not been through education. That's rare, but you have seen people achieve freedom through money. And that's why that, that, sort of, that notion is so popular um, with black people. So I, I will say that that's the one thing I took issue with as well, which is just to say there are a lot of people, as we all know, who get advanced degrees and have nothing to show for it. Um, anyway, sorry, that, that, that was... That was me rambling, but um, but yeah, higher education, of course, the numbers increase as window dressing. It doesn't change the spirit of inclusion and cultural shift. It just increases the numbers of students, many of whom are not too unlike their white counterparts in terms of their upbringing, uh, but then learn to play the sort of disaffected, oppressed personality because that's their role on these campuses. Um, and, and that's where we are. And I think a lot of them come to it late, like that Emmanuel Atro guy that uh, we mentioned last time, the Nigerian guy who has kind of made a living for himself talking, you know, being a, a Negro whisperer, talking about like, you know, race issues and being black in America. His book is literally called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And he only learned about his blackness or any blackness in fucking college. Yeah, he admitted um, multiple times that he didn't even realize he was uh, black until like college. And he, you know, up until then, his he grew up predominantly white places, affluent places. And, you know, his blackness was like an afterthought. And I'm like, there's a room... There's a room and a place for people like that to speak. And I understand they should never be allowed to speak. If he wants to speak from the perspective of, uh, hey, uh, ask a token, you know, what it feels like, you know, but by all means, like do that. But this idea of my big problem with these people, I think it ties into uh, not only both your pieces, but also a piece that Jason did before this, I thought was very good about why did Jessica Krug fool so many people? And it's this idea that we have... Uh, black people in blackface or black people who are doing a type of cosplay who themselves are kind of imposters. So, of course, a lot of these non-black imposters are going to go unnoticed because a lot of the black people who are in the 
positioned to gatekeep them are themselves uh, imposters who just happen to be melanated, you know? Something that um, comes up for me, especially in the numbers, um, is that so the latest, you know, post-COVID income and poverty report from the census hasn't been released yet. I'm sure it's going to change the numbers for black folks dramatically. But if you were just to look at the number of black people right now who are earning $75,000 a year or more, it's at about 12 million. It's 30% of the black population. It's not a tiny number. 12 million is a considerable number of people, especially if, if you imagine them spread out across suburbs. And one of the things that I'm just, for lack of a better term, I'll say I am suspicious of is, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I was born in 88. I have a lot of memories of working class and, you know, even bottom middle class black people just saying like there were good and bad niggas. This is the whole point of like Jody Armour's book. Um, the Chris Rock joke, there were, you know, there were good and bad black people. And my family was part of the bad black people. And a lot of books have been written about this where basically um, there's a lot of class hostilities. And so the thing I'm suspicious of is like, I, I don't necessarily think that black poor people will get consideration in any policy or initiative unless we highlight the degree to which they are poor and less economically powerful than, you know, working class and middle class black folks, because there's so many examples of history of gatekeeping. And it's not just like a tiny elite, the richest ones, like there are $75,000 earning black people who do not want, you know, poor black people in their neighborhood or close to it. And so that makes me nervous. And I get more nervous when um, like people try to correct me on Twitter or say, like, why do we need to even mention how much poor black people, you know, basically ask me like, why do poor black people need this recognition if all black people are hurting in some way? And I'm not really sh like, I don't, I don't know why it would be bad to recognize the distinct position of poor black people in these movements. And I don't know that I trust someone who says that they're for all black people and they obviously care about the black poor, but they don't want it written out in policy. They don't necessarily want it specifically to be like, these people should be front of the line because they're at a point where they can't even feed themselves. I'm distrustful of it. Yeah, that objection alone would be like a red flag uh, to me coming from somebody if I even heard an objection like that. I agree with you. I'd be skeptical and dubious of that person's motivations right off jump yeah 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 shit i mean there's a lot of you're bringing a lot of things to mind like so once let me circle back to something real quick that you were saying about having poor black people in a room and how that might not, not actually uh improve anything um one thing is contextually uh you gotta remember and, and it's really hard to remember because we're so steeped in in it how deeply molded we are by and wedded we are to american capitalism you're right it wouldn't necessarily improve a thing. I remember working at the International uh, Writers Program. That's a residency program in Iowa City. We bring people from over 30 countries in. Um, and uh, I was reading submissions for it. I would, I would be excited, like, yo, I'm about to read some dude from Vietnam is gonna write fiction. The narrative, the topic, it's gonna be, bro, it was like a Tom Cruise movie, which is to say that American capitalism, their vision of the world is now being recycled back to them. I'm now seeing what's being shit out the anus of American propaganda come back to me from a random in Vietnam who is trying to appeal to American sensibilities. Similarly, my cousin, uh, Gerard, AKA Cuxi, AKA Gio, AKA Javon, AKA Giovanni. My cousin, my cousin is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Um, and not always in the best ways. Did 10 years for attempted murder, used to pimp, used to sell crack in, in Harlem. Um, 
incredibly charismatic, incredibly instinctually smart. And when he was in jail and learned that I was in the top MFA program in the country, he had someone, uh, he hand wrote his memoir and he had someone type it up and then mail it to me so I could send it, uh, show it to my teachers. I was very excited about this. I was wondering like all of the fascinating shit he's done, what insights I would glean from this shit. I opened it up and the title was Weapons of Mass Seduction. And it was a black exploitation memoir, uh, which is to say that perceptions of black experience had overwhelmed his own fascinating experience. He was catering to an audience and a gaze. And I think it's hard to get away from catering to gazes and whatever the dominant capitalistic gaze is, whatever it is that pays you when you have not had a lot is what you try to flatter. And that is sort of the dirty secret of American society is that not only are white people racist, but we've absorbed a lot of it and we enjoy a minstrel show almost as much as they do at this point. And I think that that's something that people don't admit. And when I saw my cousin's manuscript, it hit me really hard in the chest that this was the case. Yeah, because it's kind of like behaviorism and like the Pavlov's dog or the rat and the cheese. Like uh, if you get rewarded for doing something and ignored or punished for doing something else, you get the same incentives as everyone else. So to me, I feel like what you said, the capitalist system is so set up to let you know if you want to get money to solve your problems this is what a white audience wants to hear so i i feel like we see like like for example um uh, bertrand had moonlight as an example of like you know poverty done well and what i think he did it better than a lot of other people would have like i think he was definitely better at depicting poverty than a lot of other people but i still didn't like little things like the knockout game and everything being steeped in like homophobia all the time and that like everyone just walks around on pins and needles avoiding straight black men who are running around like fury road just terrorizing everybody and stuff and like even in that one even though i think it was a better depiction of poverty than a lot of other things i felt like there was still stuff in there similar to precious where it was a white liberal's idea of like uh what black poverty must be like you know um those scary black men are just making it tough for everybody who's not straight black and male little agendas like that you know Uh, i wanted a chance to answer your question t um one of the things that really bothered me in working in media or not before i even got in media listening to certain things um on the radio watching tv i was one of those people that like to watch all the you know news talk shows or hot topics type of talk shows and I used to really get annoyed because I noticed that the people that were always at the table representing black people weren't people that came from where I was from. And when I got into hip hop media, one of the things that bothered me is I noticed that a lot of these publications and stations um, were hiring people who clearly had were not from communities where hip hop grew. Right. And it really began to. And I, you, you can notice this if you go back and you look, look at a lot of old hip hop stuff, um, old hip hop articles from all hip hop dot com or hip hop DX and all those sites. Um, S.O.H.H. Um, it's a bunch of them. If you look at some of those out of those old articles, there are a lot of people who have very stereotypical questions they would ask rappers, you know, about being locked up, about being drug dealers, about the, you know, stuff like that. And so when I got into uh, media, I literally just started with a little Internet radio show. I don't have a broadcasting degree and just had like a little internet thing. And somebody heard my show and they said, hey, I want to get you this rapper, Glasses Malone. Glasses Malone is a rapper. He's known as a quote unquote gangster rapper from out here in L.A. I think he would identify himself as that. <laughs> but um, 
So I got to interview him. He was one of my very first celebrity interviews. And I, 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 you know, I listened to his music, of course, growing up in L.A. But, you know, I didn't really ask him questions about growing up in the streets. I didn't ask him questions about his mom being locked up and all the other stories. I was asking him about the election because at the time Obama was running against Hillary. And so I'm asking those kind of questions. And he's like, you know, nobody ever thinks to ask me those questions. Nobody thinks I have an opinion on it. And I thought that was interesting. That was like literally where my light bulb came on. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You never hear people who are from Watts, people who are from, um, you know, these other low income communities speaking for themselves as far as their political opinions. They're all it's like all these assumptions about who they are and who people who they think they are. And so that was kind of always my mission after that. And that's all the work I've ever done was how do I get people to the table and to the mic and to the camera that are never invited to the table, to the mic and to the camera. You watch MSNBC, it's the same people. It's the Roxanne Gays, right? Shout out to Q on yeah. <laughs> Andre Domai. That was so much Shout deeper than him. I knew. Yeah, and it's a even deeper rabbit hole now that I know more from stuff from Jason but um the rea- the reality is that that you know that's always been something that's stuck in my paw so my goal much like how Bertrand said you know my goal wasn't necessarily to give the solution my goal was to at least get us to the fucking table that was the problem you feel me like I felt like why are we not even asked these questions see the thing is I grew up in South Central and I, I understand my life is a complete anomaly like I, I'm, I don't fit any of the, any of the categories. I told you guys all the details of my life. Y'all would be like, this doesn't fit into anything. And I know it doesn't. But one of the things that um, I was growing up, you know, I was a part of a group called South Central Youth Empowered Through Action. We were a group of student activists. And, you know, the conversations we were having were conversations about gentrification, the conversations around school funding. We took pictures of the conditions at our school, literally. You can look this up. We took pictures of the conditions at our school and sent it to Channel 7 News. And it became a big story. We actually ended up winning a campaign called Prop BB here in L.A. If you want guys, LAUSD, if you guys want to look it up. We won $153 million to fix the cosmetic problems at our schools because what was happening is the funding was going to um, the West Side, which is like, you know, the middle class areas, white areas. They were getting funding because they were getting higher test scores. The money was going to whoever had the highest test scores, not to the schools that needed the funding the most. So because of that, we were able to get the money to fix the corroded water fountains, the falling ceiling tiles, the fact that we didn't have enough desks in our classrooms. Literally, we'd have to go next door to other classrooms to get desks so we can have a, a place to sit in our class. So when we did that, from doing that type of work, these were the kind of discussions we were having in South Central in our schools. But nobody thinks to ask us about stuff like that when they ask about South Central. When people want to come get these stories, I'm sorry, one last point. When people want to come to our community to get our stories, these writers, I'm going to tell you, the Issa Rays and all of them, they hang out over here to get our stories, I promise you. I've had people ask me to link them up with certain groups of youth. This is a real thing. I'm not even exaggerating. They come to our community. And funny enough, there's a TV show called Ballers. They kind of do some shit like that. And, and that's a real thing. That's where they got it from. That's what, that's what those motherfuckers do. And they come to our communities and they look what our kids are doing and they write about our kids. Yeah, and I didn't like and they how they write about had, our community. I don't like how they depict the kids in uh, Insecure. I always feel like the kids are just exactly. there to be kind of rude and ratchet. And notice, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. So they come here, they they, talk, they write about us, and they talk about us. And that's the perspective they have. Not once have you seen them depict student activists. You know, South Central Youth through, Empower Through Action still exists today. It's still in the same location on Vermont and 81st. You can still go over there. Not once have I seen Issa Rae depict them. 
And I'm and, and, and that's not just uh, not just her. It's anybody. Cause that and that's part of the reason why when you have these uh, conversations on TV, you see these the pundits are always shouting out, "What about Chicago? What about the Bronx? What about?" They say that shit because they literally only have one perspective. They know Compton for one thing. They don't talk about none of the other things of the beautiful things that have happened in Compton. The events that they have in Compton, the rodeos that they have in Compton. They don't talk about the 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 Power Fest. We have a whole activist festival that we do here every year called South LA Power Fest. Does anybody know that exists? No. But they'll tell you about some drive-by. So that's my whole that's my whole thing. The fact that our, we're not even at the table to even be a part of the conversation, to even be the writers at the table, that is the fucking problem. And I just wanted to say that. <laughs> Every yeah. That was all super super important. I I yeah, that's wild. Um, I wanted to jump in <laughs> mostly, and this is <laughs> this is not necessarily a good thing. I don't know where this is going to go, so I'm just going to say it. But like going back to the moonlight thing, um, I would really like for there to be a diversity of uh, for there to be a critical mass of poor people at the table, like Vita's talking about, because so many of these experiences are different. And um, you know, when you only have a few people, then it's kind of like everyone's burden with having to give like this really expansive picture, which I don't think they can really do. It's very hard to write about. Like, even if you grow up poor, like somebody else, it's hard to write about an experience you didn't have. Like I had this conversation a little bit on Twitter with Jason, which is where it's like me and him both have experienced like transient situations. Um, but he was in Harlem and I was in like this weird dilapidated, like X, you know, used to be a suburb, but also a business district, like part of, you know, middle of nowhere in New Jersey. And it's just different. Um, but the, one of the reasons I liked Moonlight is because uh, I don't have like any bright spots in my family. Like the dude who's circling, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie when he's in the lunchroom and he's getting circled. That bully, that is the people that like I grew up around. And it's not just like that the black men are like that. Um, everyone around me had that sort of uh <laughs> Violence, homophobia was a big part of it as well. I mean, I was probably like nine years old sleeping over a friend's house when his mom sees us like, you know, sleeping in the same bed because we're like nine or kids. And she's just like, I better not find out y'all are, you know, she used a less kind word, but gay one day. Um, that sort of policing of masculinity was very common to me. So when I was watching Moonlight, the reason I was drawn to it was because it was made by two dudes from Liberty City and they were depicting this really hideous experience that should not be used to color all black people, certainly shouldn't be used to color all poor black people, but it was familiar to me. So as a piece of art that was actually true to that hideousness, it resonated with me on that level, especially because like I'll watch middle-class, upper-middle-class, upper-class black people try to capture what it is to be in that sort of hostility. And I can just, their, their version of it I can just detect the middle classness on that. It's so palpable where it's like watching Moonlight. It nailed it. And, you know, it's not something to celebrate. It's just like that was true in an artistic sense, in a representation sense to me. That's why I was drawn to that film, because, again, I, I just wasn't lucky enough to have one of those family where there's like these bright spots or one of the, you know, some people are the kids, uh, children of like blood or crypt members. But like through their family, you know, they have a grandparent who is also in the Black Panther. I'm the you know child of a GKB blood out of like Newark, New Jersey. But there's no activism. There's no, you know, political bright spot. There's no like black consciousness. It's just surviving poverty and responding to it violently. So that's my background. You know, what Vita said uh, struck a chord with me. I remember being in college in an undergraduate writing class. 
Um, and I wrote a story uh, in which there was, uh, I think, a, a mother who was obsessed with crossword puzzles or something. This white woman who was came from some wealth in Long Island raised her hand and she said, you know, I thought this was well written, but what I wanted to hear was, I wanted to hear this story in the author's actual voice, not the voice he learned in high school and college, right? Um, the implication being that, um, you know, the way that we spoke, the way that my mom spoke, um, that this was something I was putting on because I had been educated. And I didn't learn a lot at prep school, and I didn't learn a lot at Wesleyan. And God knows I ain't learned a fucking thing at the Iowa Writers Workshop. I'll tell you that straight up. Um, not a fucking thing, all right? So um, I was sitting there and I was thinking, she really has no room in her mind for a black woman who's excellent at crossword puzzles and listens to Nancy Wilson records, as if somehow that person couldn't live in a welfare hotel or in a shitty tenement, right? Um, and I think this comes back to what we're talking about, about black nerds and this, this idea of blurs as some distinct middle, upper middle class group of uh, black people who are ostracized by other blacks. No, nah, my mother was a blurred, you know? I was a blurred. We have a term for it. Sean Price from Boot Camp Click is a black nerd. He does graffiti, he can dance, he's quick with it, he can rap his ass off. It just so happens he'd probably punch you in the fucking face too because he grew up where he did, but he was a black nerd. Being a nerd usually represents a hyper-focus on something, a sort of um, an obsessive uh, nature, um, a deep knowledge and intellect um, about certain subjects. It doesn't just mean you're just some lame person who's disaffected and feel disenfranchised and you don't have friends, right? Um, but I think that the black middle class and upper class needs to believe in the same sort of low-down nigger uh, that white people do in order to bolster their own sort of mediocrity as unique and interesting, right? Um, as if, like, the black upper class isn't on drugs. They're not fucking. They're not having abortions. I mean, this was what I learned when I went to high school and to college. You know, this was, to me, the value of, of integration. It wasn't that I was better off for knowing white people. It's that the myth of white supremacy and class supremacy, the ear gets taken out of that immediately. These are just bombs. They're doing every terrible thing you can imagine. They're the biggest losers on earth, right? But they have to paint the black underclass as pathological to justify their own moral innocence and their delusions of innocence and superiority. This is not unique to white people. And it's clear that the black upper class does this too. And you see this not only through the art they create and some of this stuff you're talking about, you're like, Issa Rae, you know, doesn't do children well. I don't know what any of these people do well. I don't watch the shit. I'm too old. Like, you know, you hit a certain stage with people, and I'm sure that you all have this experience. There might be a person you would talk to at age 17 and maybe even at 23. Past 30, you see that person in a bar or a restaurant or anywhere else, and you're like, nope, that person's prohibitively crazy or maladjusted, right? No, that's how I feel about the trailers for these movies and TV shows. Like, I see half a second of them. I'm like, well, that's some shit I ain't gonna watch. You know, like, that's not possible. I'm not reading that book. You can see it a mile away. So I'm actually woefully uh, unfamiliar with the, the sort of um, filmography and, and catalogs of some of these people you guys mentioned because they seem to be prohibitively banned, uh, you know, right off the bat. Like, I don't, Issa Rae and, and, and Insecure just look like some shit that clearly was not for this motherfucker right here. I will tell you that a lot of that only imbibed specifically on a mission for research. Same with like reading the National Book Award books. Like I didn't care for any of them, but I read it specifically to try and see like, you know, 
what does this person's inner world look like if they're representing, you know, this particular class of black people and they're always asked to talk about redlining or lead poisoning or over-policing and shit like that? Like, what does their subjectivity look like? And is it familiar to me at all? And uh, yeah, I, I didn't... <laughs> So it's basically my same approach to listening to a Chance the Rapper record. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Like it was it was purely research based. Like I was not intrigued by these things. I wasn't like, oh, I got to go pick that up. I'm really going to enjoy it. I just I don't know. I want to see what it was like. And it was just, um, yeah, I, I don't care for most of it. And it is it's hard to get through some through some of it. And I don't know the the, the freedom. <laughs> Just for being black that some of these people have to describe uh, the black experience, whether they're describing the poor experience or experience in general, just like the carte blanche freedom they have to do that tires me out. Like I remember, uh, I think it might be E.G. Omo. Uh, I'm probably saying her name wrong as fuck, and I apologize to her if she ever hears it, or I apologize about that part. I'll be shocked but, if she ever listens to this podcast, but uh, yeah. she, she has been um, blocked on Twitter, so yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. She wrote a book mostly about like the mediocrity of white men. I want to say that's her, but it could be another one of the people in oh, this no, circle. Oh, no, it's her. It's her. Um, I think it's called, I think it's it's called Mediocre. Yeah. So there's this part where because she's black, she's supposed to be like just automatically imbued as this amazing cultural critic because just being black, you're on the outside. So you're able like no one else to tell white people really about themselves. And that's what a lot of these white liberals are paying for is like this black gaze that's supposed to really be penetrating just because being black, you're just so outside of everything, which I have a bone to pick with. But there'll be little senses about how you know, she's really going through public education and she's not hearing, you know, she's saying that there's no black heroes, that when you grow up black, you don't get to hear about like black people from history. You never get to be the hero in any of these stories. And what really strikes me about this is like, and maybe I won't phrase this the best way, but that's like wanting to be a hero in a very particular white acknowledged context. Because me growing up, I don't know anyone who was hanging posters of historical figures on their fucking walls. Like nobody was considering that a hero. Heroes, as far as I knew, were often athletes or musicians. And it was full of black people in both those. And I knew lots of people who would have said, you know, Michael Jordan or, you know, any Barry Sand. Like there were so many people who would be thought of as heroes who were black. But for her, because there were no black heroes in her particular academic, and she is a blurred, in her particular academic black nerd space like she didn't see black people being celebrated the way white people were being celebrated well then just flat out there's no black heroes and but, nobody in society cares about black heroes and but what about like taken. garvey and malcolm x i mean other people houses i went to had marcus garvey or malcolm x it's, you know she probably views them as, as she probably views them as hoteps and patriarchs knowing knowing her body <laughs> knowing her body of work like she has a lot of funny style ways about her like for example uh to give some background on her her father is uh, Nigerian, came here in the 70s to go to college, met her mom. I noticed from reading interviews with her, met her mom, fell, her, fell in love. But when she was a toddler, her father moved back to Nigeria during a coup in 1982 and never uh, returned. So her story is kind of similar to Barack Obama's in that she has a white American mother who was impregnated by um, an African person who came here to go to school and then came and went back. So she was raised by a single white woman. And she didn't speak to her father until a few days before he died. So so her father's side is um, Nigerian, but didn't really raise her. And she didn't see him from toddler years up until the time he died. And her mother's white American. So I'm not saying she doesn't have the right to speak on something black or 
talk about her story at all, but something about her being the authority to be the, be the, be the intermediary to explain blackness to white people just seems kind can, of weird. Can I hop in? Of course, go ahead. Like, I'm gonna, I want to hop in for this reason. Not, I don't know who this person is, um, but I feel like I heard of that book, or like maybe we exchanged text messages and we were like um, sending people, we were sending each other screenshots of like really um, over the top self parodic, um, you know, book titles. And I feel like you sent me that. Uh, T, I, I, yeah, this I, def- I definitely, I definitely texted you about her. She said something crazy. Yeah, it was an interview, and I sent it. Yeah, because I, I don't, I don't know who this. And, and here's the thing, man. I, there's nobody, as you read in my piece. It, I'll open fire on whoever the fuck I feel like. I'm, you know, that's how I am. So, but I want to also be clear. If I don't know you or don't know who you are, I'm not just gonna insult you or, or take a shot at you because I'm unfamiliar with the work and it's, it's not sincere. Uh, but. What you're saying, um, again, strikes a nerve with me. And I said this in that piece you were talking about, about Jessica Krug, where it's like, you know, I acknowledge there's not a singular authentic way to be black, right? But while this sort of black person is quick to assert that blackness isn't a monolith, what you observe is that what they do is they do it in a duplicitous sort of self-serving way as a rationalization that justifies this class monopoly on black perspective. So regardless of lived experience, they feel they're entitled to speak on the entirety of black experience. And the reality is that some of them have such little respect for the lived experience of black people, unless they can usurp them, that they can't identify interlopers and frauds because they're running a similar con, right? Whereas I'm being very deferential in saying that the black experience contains multitudes and but the bulk of black Americans have had experiences far more similar to mine than most of the black people I encounter. Um, I've encountered in prep school, undergraduate and graduate education, and certainly and during my teaching. You know, those are not people who move in step with the bulk of black experience in America, right? Um, and so there was a professor I worked with, no offense to her, um, I think she had a French white mom and a Nigerian father who did not raise her, right? And we saw each other uh, at a Spike Lee uh, film, um, and the Spike Lee film ended, and you know we both had very different reactions to it. And then I ran into her somewhere else on campus, and uh, you know she kind of was standoffish about my opinion of the film. Um, we had coffee, and, and the sense I got from this woman was she was very surprised that I was allowed on the same campus that she was, you know? And I was like, I, you know, my my approach, I, I don't know, how, you don't, you, I don't know how you learn this. This is genuinely who I am. I don't have a lot of time for white people or black people. I ain't got time for the bullshit, dog. When you're a legitimate individual and you've earned your identity, you, when you don't make compromises and you have integrity, you're not sitting there feeling insecure all the time. I'm just sitting there like, why is this lady condescending to me? Like, you were raised by a white lady in another country. You have an outrageously elite education. Your friends are all people who never came anywhere near my family. And yet you think you have the perspective and the intellect to tell me about why your take on the Spike Lee film is far more sophisticated than mine. And I'm sorry, lady, but uh, you need to shut the fuck up, dog. You are talking to the master here. I'm from this motherfucking neighborhood. I'm from this experience. I've seen the entire body of work. And on top of that, I hate to fucking break it to you. I got as good an education as you did, if not better. And I won the awards too. So where is all this coming from? We're here to exchange ideas and perspectives. And you're letting me know off rip that you have no time for mine because for whatever reason, you find me to be unrefined. It could be that I have a gold tooth. 
It could be that before I had the gold tooth, I broke my tooth and I had a broken tooth there. It could be that I wear a gold bracelet. I never know with these uppity Negroes, but they always bring all this psychological baggage to their perspective that they won't acknowledge while pretending, right? They're pretending to do these incredible deep dives, these profound dives on blackness and can't even acknowledge their own bias. Whereas I'm sitting here trying to be generous and I'm like, hey, you know, my shit is not the only shit. Just because I know all this shit doesn't mean I'm the authority. And these people will straight up jump over you and be like, well, nigga, I am the authority. And here's what I'm saying, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know my theory about that is too, man? I feel like a lot of these people thought they were special snowflakes. Like, they, they have this thing where they think, um, what makes me special is how black I'm not. As in, I'm black, but um, I am a special snowflake i'm not like the other uh bad blacks we talked about the good black versus the bad black that you know is intimated in a lot of these people's works and jokes even like uh the the niggas versus black people jokes a lot of black people like that joke as much as white people did because they like the idea that any any mediocre thing i do can be elevated by the fact that uh i'm black so it means more that i didn't turn out a quote-unquote uh nigger and I think it's pretty interesting because these people reach a point where they realize, okay, all my white friends and peers that I grew up with that I thought, you know, I was closer to them than to the so-called niggas. uh, They actually just see me as uh, an ape that was taught how to talk or how to walk upright. You know, that's kind of what they see me like, you know, as in I'm kind of a novelty. They'll always everything I do is going to be tinged with the, um, you know, the fact that. I'm black and that they just see me as um, a, a inferior person that made the best out of a bad deal or something. So when they realize, okay, if all you're going to do is see me as a black person, if I can't escape that box, then that same superiority that I had that made me think, you know, that I'm an honorary white person, uh, if I'm going to accept that I'm going to be seen as black and the only way I can climb is to be a Negro whisperer, that same superiority complex I had that made me want to be a special snowflake and an honorary white. When I go back to the black people, I expect to be installed as the king of blacks. I want to be the manager of black people. You know, uh, I have no popular support. The people on the ground don't know me. I don't connect to them. I have no grassroots following of populist black people, but I have the ear of the white people who choose, in my mind, the kings of blacks. So... I'm going to be selected by some white gatekeeper to be the uh, manager of black people. And I don't care. The actual black people on the ground know who I am or even like me, except to the point where they have a chance to expose me as a fraud. Like the only time they really care what black people think is when black people are clowning them in front of white people, because then they're kind of exposing, you know, the grift and the imposter syndrome. But yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I do want to like acknowledge that, you know, a lot of times, and I think y'all have touched on this, that like people take on this black identity or it, it, I hate that I have no other terminology for it. They take on this version of a black identity when they're still young and they're in college. And a lot of these people have been like the black person in a room full of white people. And then you go to college and the only identity that people accept for them um, is if they can put on this very particular black identity. And it does kind of feel like a masquerade or something that everyone's kind of in on the joke, like when I went to graduate school, and I told you all this story in the lost, you know, episode, but I would hear, you know, I'm in graduate school, 
close, you know, seminar, only like 12 students in there, three or four might be black. And they're saying all the same oppressive statistics. Again, things like talking about uh, poverty, concentrated poverty, redlining, the stuff that I know the overwhelming majority of the people experiencing it uh, were born and raised, you know, black and poor and that it's not these students who are speaking. And they're saying they're quoting the statistics, but then they're giving their own spin on it. They're giving their own psychology on it. They're basically saying, you know, how black people in general feel about this and the white students are nodding along. Um, and when I would disagree, I would go the extra mile by including a story of like growing up in a crack den or having to like beg money for lunch, for my lunch or talk about my dad just to say, not only do I know these statistics and I'm reading these things, but these are actual memories to me. And the room would fall silent pretty much because those black students had burst the bubble. I just revealed to like the white students that all the black students had that actual experience. They kind of know a lot of these stories from reading the same books. And it would be this very weird, you know, the room goes silent experience where the black students didn't know how to argue with me since I had actual memories of it, which in this whole black credentialing system and white spaces makes, you know, me more authentic or more real, which is, you know, bullshit anyway. Um, but that's the social norm. And then the white students didn't know what to do when they were exposed to like a diversity of black opinion. Um, and yeah, just ruins the whole thing by admitting that not all black students come from this particular experience. And I get frustrated a lot that, you know, certain individuals, I'll go back to Egeoma, but, you know, Donald Glover has the same thing. When you find interviews of them talking about middle school and stuff like that, they all have stories about how they weren't hanging out with really the core of poor, even like working class black people, like they were ostracized from that group. And so you know that they grew up mostly in those white nerd settings, um, which probably aren't the best places to grow up. And then once they're adults, nobody really cares anymore. And they can claim sort of this uh, lucrative black experience, especially for like capitalist reasons, since that's the only thing white people want to know about is like white people want to ask them those questions. But they because they're given that they're allowed to say these things that just don't resonate with like my experience, even of black poverty, like one that kills me all the time is the talking about like the self-esteem, like Ijeoma talk, you know, lots of them reference this idea that like just being black, all the poor black people are bearing all this low self-esteem or low self-confidence. And every time that I've looked at psychology research or surveys of black people, they always rank exceptionally high despite their circumstances in self-esteem or feelings of self-efficacy. But that research just doesn't matter because someone who had an insecure experience as a black person says all black people are insecure. Um, something that you just touched, yeah, something you just touched on that I think is very important is that you said this is all that white people kind of want to hear from them. And I think that's right, but I think it also creates an anger in them. And we touched on this quickly last time, um, but I feel like they're very, very angry, but their anger comes from a different place than the anger of a lot of poor and working class black people who come from a black environment in that their anger, like I feel like a lot of poor black people have an anger as far as like we can't be left alone, we can't be given any way out or whatever, or we feel like a lot of doors are closed for us before we even start walking and all these different things. But their anger is, they have an anger toward white people and toward other black people, and both angers are slightly different but related. Like, they're angry at white people for not loving them and accepting them as, you know being bigger than the race you know like like this is all that white people want from them but if they had their way i think they would rather not have to cosplay like even though they're willing to do it because 
if this is what it takes for white people to accept them, they're going to do it. But if they had their way, they'd rather do Bjork reviews and talk about um, cosplay <laughs> and be accepted for that. But they're not going to be accepted for that's for white people to make a living talking and doing about that. We want you to talk about the nigger stuff. So I'm going to do it, but I'm going to resent you for not seeing me as one of yourselves, but I can't go that hard on you because at the end of the day, you're the table I want to see that. You're the people I want to assimilate with. I'll be passive aggressive with you. Like I always joke that the uh, show Dear White People, the movie Dear White People, like the, the full title should be Dear White People, stop being racist so we can fuck you. Like that's that's basically like where they're coming from. They're they're mad Man, why don't you love why don't you love me more? But the black people they're mad at as in if you guys had your act together, these people would see me as one of them. It's your fault that uh, I'm being kept. Like in addition to not feeling, in addition Yo, to not what? feeling guilty about having to co-opt these people's lives and steal their valor, they're even blaming them, the poor people, for like you know it sucks that you forced me to steal your valor and have to cosplay as as you. So they save a bulk of their I think vitriol to, for the poor black people. Do you remember that whole era? Maybe it still exists and I've just been oblivious to it. But there was like this whole era of like the black, the black blogs, blogs of fear sort of thing. Where it was like, what was it called? The Griot, The Root, um, Black Voices, some shit on yeah, Yahoo. Yeah, grape, all kinds of shit. Grape juice and something. <laughs> Young, black and fabulous. Grape wine yeah. and some shit. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, all that shit. And it was like every day was some weird ass think piece about some random piece of quote-unquote black culture that they picked up on tv somewhere and it's like literally a tv show that they're writing way too much about <laughs> right as though it's like oh living single it changed the lives of black women forever and you're like what you know yeah, like they, <laughs> I'm they, just they write it and put a context on it that no one watching it at the time actually had like they, they retrofitted to fit like the blavity type of right uh fixations yeah, yeah and it was it, just like be like a random actor on one of those shits and they'll have random photos of when she was younger and be like she's a whole mood she just looked like a regular ass black lady in a bikini why the fuck am i looking at her she looks like my aunt lillian what am i supposed to say what the fuck are y'all talking about anymore? but that's the thing it's like it's like very clear that they got their um takes on what black culture was from tv not from literally growing up and you can always tell the difference. But the thing that's even crazier to me is as much as they want this approval in white spaces and to be seen as a good black, they take up a lot of spaces in quote unquote, they take up they take up a lot of room in quote unquote black spaces. They run all the black blogs, <laughs> right? They run all the black publications. In fact, they don't even really run them. They work for them, right? And so and they and they all write the same type of shit. And then the more I'm finding out, most of these people did did not grow up black American in a black neighborhood, or even from a Caribbean or even a Caribbean or African, but grew, grew up with black people. Like there are literally people who grew up in these white middle class areas because. I didn't even know how big of a because we don't have like a huge Caribbean population here in LA, but we have like we have mostly Belizeans and Central Americans and stuff. So the Belizean community here is right here with us. So I didn't know that there was this, these other people in these white areas that were getting this other type of perspective on black people. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two be good <laughs>